0: Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Atim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week we've got the second of our clinical exam revision sessions. Sophie Constantinou, one of our paediatric trainees here in Wales, has put together a podcast focusing on the respiratory examination, something to listen to if you've got your clinical exams coming up. For those of you unfamiliar with our previous clinical teaching sessions, the format is as follows, Sophie first has an interview with some of the other trainees with some top tips that they've got for the upcoming exam, she'll then walk you through the process of the examination and at the end has a series of focus on talks where she discusses specific findings that you may come across during your clinical examination. So this week it'll be respiratory clinical findings. Anyway that's enough from me, let's get started.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Sophie and welcome to this revision podcast for the MRCPCH clinical exam. Episode 2 is on the respiratory station. So each episode we focus on one potential station in the clinical exam and this week it's respiratory. As always, we're going to start with our top tips. After that, we'll revise the structure of the clinical exam itself. Then we are going to focus down on some key areas of the respiratory examination which this week are clubbing, hyperexpansion, respiratory distress, and cystic fibrosis. You can test your knowledge with our pub quiz episode on the respiratory examination, as well as downloading a PDF of the key points from this episode on the website, so make sure that you check it out. So, what are our top tips for the respiratory exam? Make sure that you're nice to the child and the family. You need to show them that you've dealt with children, you've worked with children before.
0: Be swift because it's a lot to do, like percussion, auscultation, on the back and front. Time management is important in this bit because it's the one I struggled with. I mean, I barely completed it. And when you're presenting your findings, be methodical, eye-to-eye contact with the examiner and confident and all the best.
1: In the respiratory examination, make sure that you look all over the chest, you might not see these costal recessions, um, say on the front. Also look for other signs, so look for a port if you think that this child might have see it.
0: Don't forget the scars in cardiac and uh, abdominal and respiratory stations, so look for the scars, don't miss them, that's a failing criteria.
1: Okay, so let's go over the structure of the respiratory examination. We're going to begin from a general inspection, though in the exam they may only ask you to focus down on one or two aspects of the exam. They might say, listen to the chest or inspect the precordium," so just make sure that you're doing what's asked of you. For all stations, if you don't know what the examiner is asking, just check with them. To start, it's wiper. Wash your hands. Introduce yourself, ask for permission from the patient and the parent, expose the patient, which for the respiratory exam should be from the waist up, and reposition the patient to 45 degrees. Next up, it's the traditional inspection, palpation, percussion, and auscultation, with the caveat that you may want to consider auscultating first if your patient is little or becoming upset but just tell the examiner what you are doing and why. Next, have a look around the room. Can you see any oxygen saturation probes or supplemental oxygen? Are there any inhalers or nebulizers visible? Have they left a pot of Creon out on the table? And is there a peak flow meter or a sputin pot visible? Then take a good look at your patient from the end of the bed Are they small for their age, or are they well-grown? Are they nice and pink, or do they look pale or cyanosed? And do they have any increased work of breathing at rest? So then you step forward and you do a close inspection of the hands. I like to feel the hands as well at this point for temperature. So are they cool or warm? Then I inspect the nails for any signs of clubbing. I also look for peripheral cyanosis. Then I move up the arm. I tend to examine the patient's skin as I'm working up the arm to look for signs of eczema as this could corroborate a history of atopy and the patient might then have asthma. Next, have a look at your patient's face. Take a look in the eyes for conjunctival pallor. Have a look in the mouth for central cyanosis. Remember that central cyanosis is best checked under the tongue and usually only apparent when the sats are less than 85%. When I'm inspecting the patient's face in the respiratory station, I like to look closely at the nostrils to see whether or not they have any subtle signs of nasal flare. So you've started with the hands, you've worked your way up, and now you're inspecting the precordium and the chest. Inspection is really important in the respiratory examination, and what you're looking for is any sign of chest wall deformities. These are pectus excavatum, pectus carniatum, or a harrison sulcus. To remind you, a harrison sulcus is the subcostal groove caused by excessive diaphragmatic use in small airways disease. It's also good to have a look closely for signs of increased respiratory effort when you're inspecting the chest. Just a point on inspection. Make sure that you look for scars both anteriorly and posteriorly as well as under the arms because you don't want to be missing the small scars in the axilla that may have been left by chest drains, So then I sit my patient forward and inspect the back, and when I'm doing this, I tend to opportunistically palpate in the cervical chain for lymphadenopathy. I know that this isn't in the right order, but otherwise I forget to do it, and then when I'm inspecting the axilla, I palpate there too for lymphadenopathy. We're nearly moving on to palpation anyway, and I think that's quite a good place to slot that in. So then we're moving on to palpation. So right up until the day before my exam, I would forget to palpate in all the places required. So now I've remembered it as the rule of three. So you palpate in three areas in the respiratory exam. Number one, the suprasternal notch for tracheal deviation. Number two, for the apex beat bilaterally. And number three, for chest expansion. I think I struggled to remember that because I associated the apex with the cardiac exam, but really think of it as an indicator of two really important diagnoses in the respiratory exam. Firstly, it's an indicator of mediastinal shift, for example, following a lobectomy. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it can give you the indication that the patient may have dextrocardia and therefore underlying cartagenous syndrome. If you don't palpate bilaterally for the apex beat, you might miss this, so please make sure that you get into the habit at the start of your revision period of palpating in the three places that are required. So, then we're moving on to percussion. So, percussion isn't something that you probably do routinely day to day unless you are clinically suspecting a pleural infusion. In the exam, because time is limited, I made a decision to only percuss if I felt it was clinically indicated. Other people I knew percussed the whole chest, both anteriorly and posteriorly. I didn't actually get a respiratory station in my exam, so I didn't have the chance to test my theory. So what I would suggest you do is time yourself and see how much you can get done in the six minutes. You need to make an active decision if it's going to be one of those things that you get on and do in the exam, or one of those things that you can say that you would do if you had time in your speech at the end. The same goes for tactile vocal fremitus and vocal resonance, but these are obviously included in the respiratory examination. And finally, we are at auscultation, the bit that you do every day. A few little pointers on auscultation. So, you need to make sure that you are asking the patient to breathe in and out through their mouth. An examiner I knew told me that she would mark the candidates down if they didn't specify to the patient they wanted them to breathe in and out through their mouth as she thought they couldn't be possibly be hearing any airflow at the bases of the lungs and therefore could miss clinical signs. So make sure that you ask the patient to breathe in through their mouth. The second point is to make sure you're comparing both sides. This is really obvious and we know it when we come out of medical school But it's one of those things that we fall into bad habits about on the ward. So make sure that you're auscultating bilaterally and comparing each side. And the third little tip is that ensure that at least for auscultation, you auscultate both posteriorly and anteriorly. Don't just say that you would auscultate anteriorly and posteriorly. It's good practice, both in day-to-day life and also for the exam, to auscultate on the front and the back of the chest. So that's the end of auscultation. So at this point, I would usually just go ahead and complete my examination. This is for the respiratory exam by feeling for hepatomegaly. Remember that hepatomegaly is a downwards displacement of the liver rather than true hepatomegaly and is a sign of hyperexpansion. To finish, thank the patient, wash your hands, take your stethoscope off, turn to face the examiner and say, To complete my examination I would like to measure the respiratory rate, oxygen saturations, perform a peak flow, examine the patient's ENT and plot the patient's height and weight on an appropriate chart. Remember that in this section you can name anything that you didn't manage to fit into the exam. Then you present your findings to the examiner and that leaves you with a few minutes for the examiner to ask you questions. So that completes the structure of the respiratory exam. Next up is our focus on sections. Focus on clubbing. Clubbing is the loss of the angle of the nail bed. In paediatrics, a good way of checking is by asking the child to point their fingers in the air, then to point their fingers down, and then to bring their fingers together. Don't forget that you need 6 months of low oxygen saturations over which to develop clubbing. The respiratory causes of clubbing that you need to remember are bronchiectasis, ciliary problems like CF or primary ciliary dyskinesia or infections like empyema or lung abscess and TB. A rare respiratory cause of clubbing is fibrosing alveolitis. Focus on hyperexpansion. So hyperexpansion implies there is an element of obstructive airways disease. You should be familiar with practicing the examination of hyperexpansion by looking at a child from the front and the side and examining the anterior posterior diameter and chest excursion during the respiratory phase. Common causes of hyperexpansion you may see in the exam are, number one, asthma, number two, cystic fibrosis, number three, bronchiectasis, number four, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Make sure that you're looking for other signs associated with being born preterm, such as for the patient's head shape for plagiocephaly, and have a look at the backs of their hands for any IV scars from previous cannulas, and check for chest drain scars in the axilla. They may obviously also have an oxygen requirement. Number five, for recurrent aspiration syndrome, for example, if the child has got cerebral palsy. And number six, tracheoesophageal fistula repair. So they are the six causes of hyperexpansion you may find in the exam. A good tip is that you, if, if you see a child with a hyperexpanded chest and you see clubbing, the likely diagnosis is of an underlying suppurative lung disease, such as cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis. Thankfully the young patients with cystic fibrosis tend to be quite well maintained on medications so it's unlikely that you'll see a patient with CF with evidence of clubbing but they might bring you the one patient in the region that unfortunately has developed these problems so you need to be familiar with it, it's not one of those things you see day to day. So that's the hyperexpanded chest and clubbing. If you see a hyperexpanded chest and the child does not have clubbing it's more likely that your underlying diagnosis is asthma, or less commonly, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Focus on respiratory distress. So I know of some consultants who don't like the term increased work of breathing, which is pretty much ubiquitous among PEDS trainees in their day-to-day descriptions of patients. In the exam, I would advise you to be descriptive of exactly what kind of increased work of breathing you can see. So if you're seeing tracheal tug, accessory muscle use, subcostal, intercostal recession, name it. I'm hopeful that you won't have a patient in the exam who is in acute respiratory distress, but on occasions, patients who've been called for the exam don't turn up for one reason or another, and therefore sometimes inpatients from the ward are pulled down to be used as part of the clinical exam. So keep this in mind, especially if you are sitting your exam in the autumn or winter. Focus on cystic fibrosis. As I mentioned earlier, it's most likely that if your patient has a diagnosis of CF, you probably won't see too much on clinical exam. But just in case you do see a patient with active clinical signs, let's go over what you would see on inspection. So from the end of the bed, Your patient with CF might be small and thin. They might be tachypneic and hyperexpanded. And you might think that they have elements of delayed puberty. Depends on their age. On inspection of the hands, you might find clubbing. And they might have peripheral cyanosis. On the backs of the hands, you might see scars from previous IV attempts. When you look at their face, you might find jaundice in the sclera. Make a point of saying that you would inspect the nose, as in cystic fibrosis there are often nasal polyps. On inspection of the precordium and chest, you'll probably note again the increased work of breathing, and when you palpate for chest expansion, it may be limited, as they may be hyperexpanded at rest. When looking for scars, it's also important to look at the patient's abdomen. Patients with CF may have had previous meconium ileus, a previous gastrostomy for feeds, and if they have CF-related liver disease, you might find a at medusae and ascites. You might find they have a scar on their tummy from previous surgical management of DIOS, or distinal intestinal obstruction syndrome. And the abdomen may also be the site of insulin injections if they have CF-related diabetes. Focus on the CF annual review. So we are branching a bit into history taking, and with the new format of the examination, the RCPCH College website mentions that they won't be asking candidates about management in the clinical stations anymore. However, it's still really good practice to know what goes on in an annual review. If you get the chance, try and get to a CF clinic with a supportive consultant. This can be a great way of revising for the exam as you will have well patients to practice examinations on, as well as a consultant captive to give you some pointers. So back to the CF annual review. In the history, you want to make sure that the patient is adhering to their medications. Ask them how much score they've missed and about their hospital admissions. You'll obviously want a baseline set of observations, including O2 sats and respiratory rate, and you'll want to plot their height and weight on a chart and make sure they're following their centile over time. Regarding investigations and treatment, you want to ask the patient for a cough swab or an NPA, nasopharyngeal aspirate. Blood should be monitored in clinic, and these are specifically for the white cell count, for aspergillus-specific IgE and total IgE to monitor for ABPA, as well as a set of LFTs. You might want to consider a stool sample for faecal elastase. You'll definitely want spirometry and perhaps a routine chest x-ray or abdominal ultrasound scan. Some consultants perform high-res CT chest scans to monitor for small airways disease. If you're asked about the MDT, you need to have an understanding about which member does what. When I've been to the cystic fibrosis clinic, the patients tend to stay in the rooms in order to avoid spreading bugs between them, and the MDT rotates around the patient. So the physios will want to check the equipment for home nebulizers and chest physio and they may ask the patient to show them their airway clearance techniques. They may also perform spirometry. Next come the dietitians. Children with CF need more calories and might also have poor appetites so they may be on supplements such as milkshakes. They are also likely to have pancreatic insufficiency and therefore be on Creon. Dieticians take a diet history and adjust the dose of Creon based on the patient's symptoms, weight gain trajectory, and stools. They obviously do a lot more than this, but that is some of the things that you might want to mention if you're asked about the role the dietitian plays in the management of CF. Next, you might have a CF nurse who might pop in generally to ask how the family are coping and act as a link between the hospital and the school. Lastly, in the place you work, there might be a specific CF psychologist who's available to talk to the family about their child's lifelong chronic condition and work out any problems as able. So that's it for the focus on sections. All right, so that's the end of the episode for today. My thanks to Dragon Bites for hosting this podcast. Make sure that you check out the London School of Paediatrics MRCPCH videos. And take a look at some CF patient stories on the CF Trust website. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts. Remember, you can download the companion worksheet from the website for more info on this episode and test your knowledge with our respiratory pub quiz. Thanks all for listening and see you next time for more MRCPCH revision.
0: And thank you to Sophie for that fantastic podcast there on the respiratory clinical exam. Just to quickly go over what we covered. So Sophie went over um, top tips for the exam. She then discussed the structure of the examination, um, which involves starting with wiper, observing the patient and the room from a distance, examining the hands, the arm, the skin, the face, then moving on to examining the chest by inspecting it, palpating, percussing and auscultating. Um, and then completing your examination with a formal report and asking for extra things like peak flow. She then went on to discuss some focus on areas. So she discussed clubbing with us, hyperexpansion, respiratory distress, um, respiratory distress cystic fibrosis and CF annual reviews. And that's a fantastic podcast. Hopefully it's helpful to anyone who's got their clinical exams upcoming. Good luck to you if you do. Since Sophie recorded this, we were emailed across a few more top tips. So she asked me just to pop these in at the end. So here's one from uh, one of the trainees in Wales. Can I just point out that they like to stick to things like pulmonary hyperplasia, and even if they have lung missing, you still may have breath sounds on that side. So it's important to really listen. And another tip has come in from another trainee. If you have a child with what seems like a normal exam, it could be CF. Look again for subtle signs, things around the bed, look for a port, Hyperinflated chest and so on. So a few extra top tips there for you. So in other exciting news, uh, we've had our first request from outside of Wales. We've had a request from England, I won't specify where for the sake of um, the anonymity and confidentiality of the person involved. though I don't think I have any duty of confidentiality towards them, but it just seems fair. They've asked us to do a podcast on SBAR because they're struggling to use that during handovers. So we will get on top of that as soon as we can for you. And it's, we're really grateful to get these requests from outside of Wales. So if any of you have any requests at any time, please email us. Our email address is dragonbitespodcast at gmail.com. In terms of upcoming podcasts... Please tune in again next week where we'll have the first in a series of podcasts on epilepsy. Uh, I discuss epilepsy and its mimics with Anorag Saxena, one of the paediatric neurology consultants based in the University Hospital of Wales. Please head to our website www.dragonbitespodcast.com where you can find more information on previous episodes and upcoming episodes. I think that's all there is that I have to say. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.